It's been a week. For a while there, it felt like war was around the corner for Iran and the U.S. If they do anything, they will suffer greatly. We'll see what happens with Iran. It's going to be a bad problem for Iran if something happens, I can tell you that. They're not going to be happy. They are not going to be happy people. Okay? And then the U.S. walked it back. We do not want the situation to escalate. This is about deterrence, not about war. But not before they put everyone on edge, especially in Iran. Every morning we come into work. Zain Basravi covers Iran for Al Jazeera English. And the first question that we all ask each other is, you know, has this latest development from Washington or this latest tweet from Donald Trump or the latest angry rhetoric from any given Iranian leader, is this the thing that cements the fact that we are definitely going to see a war? This latest reporting stint in Tehran has been eventful. He was actually sent there to cover some floods, and it just kept going. So far, uh, this is my 45th straight day. Wow. So, yeah. But um, this is the longest I've been here, and I think the reason that that's the case is because no one's really certain what's going to happen next. That feeling, waiting for the other shoe to drop, it wasn't just in Tehran. Kimberly Halkett is our White House correspondent. Earlier this week, she was feeling it too. Using the barometer of my reporting in Washington, this does feel precarious. It feels like we're on a precipice. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So it seems like we're not on the brink of war. Maybe we never actually were. But when we look at how fast things escalated, the question remains, how far away from the edge are we really? We spoke to Kimberly in D.C. and Zane in Tehran and took the temperature in both cities after a hairy few weeks. With a new headline almost every day, there's been a lot to keep track of. So we asked them to explain it. One really notable date is early April, April 8th. Today, the United States is continuing to build its maximum pressure campaign. That's when the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced a plan to designate the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is a branch of the Iranian Armed Forces, as a foreign terrorist organization in accordance with Section 219 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, On April 30th, Iran passes a tit-for-tat law declaring all U.S. forces in the Middle East terrorists and calling the U.S. government a sponsor of terrorism. At this point, sanctions on Iranian oil have been ramping up for more than a year. But some countries were still allowed to buy it because they were given an exception. They got waivers. And then on May 2nd, those waivers expired. So now any country that tries to buy Iranian crude will face U.S. sanctions. May 5th, National Security Advisor John Bolton announces the deployment of a carrier strike group to the region. And, and, you know, it just continues. On May 8th, the United States announces new sanctions on Iran's industrial metals like steel and copper. And that is a major part of its export economy. And we believe that escalation by the United States is unacceptable and uncalled for. We have to exercise maximum restraint, as you pointed out. 
And then in response to the new sanctions, Iran effectively threw this red flag onto the field and set a 60-day deadline for other countries in the nuclear deal, basically saying, okay, you guys need to step up and find a way to protect us from these sanctions. The U.S. government approves the deployment of a Patriot missile defense battery and another warship to the Middle East. And that's a whole bunch of warships, a group of bombers and missiles all on their way to the Gulf. Then May 12th happened, and this is the kind of initiating incident for all of this. This is where things really started to pick up. The United Arab Emirates says four cargo ships were sabotaged, there were no casualties and no fuel was spilled, and all we saw was some video of a ship with a hole in its side. A team of U.S. military investigators says Iran, or groups Iran supports, were behind the alleged attack on the tankers. But those investigators don't present any evidence linking it to Iran, and Iranians continue to deny any involvement in the incident. Tensions were high. There were some statements and tweets traded back and forth, but in the end, the U.S. reined in its war talk, but not the overall message. We'd like to see them change their behavior. We would like uh, the decades worth of bad practices that they regularly engage in to stop. We know that the maximum pressure campaign is working. You can see that by the crumbling economy that they have. And we'll see what happens from there. We're going to keep So, Kimberly, tension between Iran and the U.S. is nothing new. Here in D.C., we've been hearing this rhetoric for years. So what is it about today, this administration, that allowed this escalation to happen? This administration has had a bullseye on Iran from day one. Donald Trump campaigned that he did not like the Iran nuclear agreement, wanted to see a better agreement. When you pull out of an agreement, you now have to do something. The other big factor in all of this is Israel. There has long been, even before the Trump administration, this sense that the United States has unwavering support for Israel, and Iran is a threat to Israel, to its safety, to its security. You know, they accused it and have continued to accuse it of having a destabilizing effect on the broader Middle East. And so that is the argument why now is that there's this feeling, uh, real or imagined, that Iran continues to be a threat in the eyes of the Trump administration, and so they are acting on that threat. And within the administration, we should say, there are a few names in particular who are coming to the forefront. The declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime in Tehran. One we've been hearing a lot about is John Bolton, President Trump's national security advisor. And we know him from the Bush administration, too. The behavior and the objectives of the regime are not going to change, and therefore the only solution is to change the regime itself. So this is a name you've known for a long time. Can you remind us a little about who he is? Yeah, he is a familiar face to anyone who has been covering Washington for any length of time, and that would include me being here for 20 years. Uh, a lot of people will remember him in the lead up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, that he was one of those advocating for the invasion and using what we know to be flawed intelligence. And so for many people like myself, this is kind of deja vu. 
We know that he's a hawk, but he's also not the only hawk in the Trump administration. So how divided do you think the administration is when it comes to Iran in particular? There's a lot of division. The, the White House is denying it. But when we talk about hawks, you're right, that's plural. Uh, there's another one in there, and his name is Pompeo. Uh, we've known him as a congressman. We've known Mike Pompeo as uh, now, uh, you know, the U.S. Secretary of State. This is very concerning for a lot of people because it's these two in tandem uh, who seem to be leading the charge, whispering in the president's ear. And so what I've seen at the White House is a lot of confusion. Right. And the irony in all of this is that the coolest head in the room could be Donald Trump's. And it seems for the moment like I don't think we can call them doves, but the less hawkish hawks have prevailed. Um, we know Donald Trump doesn't really want to go to war. This is a president that's trying to win re-election. It's hard to win re-election if you've broken one of your major campaign promises to get out of foreign entanglements. So he may be playing with fire, perhaps somewhat naively, because we know he doesn't understand foreign policy that well. The concern is that there is this danger of some sort of miscalculation on either side that is going to ignite this so quickly that even Donald Trump won't be fully uh, aware of perhaps of what's happened until it's actually happening. There were a few close calls over the last few weeks and other countries were involved too, like that attack on Fujairah port in the United Arab Emirates just across the water from Iran. Zane's been covering that from Tehran. Yeah. So can you explain exactly who it is in this strait? And you alluded to this a a little bit earlier, but can you talk to us about how an incident like the one we just saw in headlines not too long ago might happen, that something might spiral out of control? So I'm referencing uh, the headline in May. Fajera. Yeah. The UAE and Saudi Arabia said that some oil tankers and commercial vessels were sabotaged. And that was just outside the strait. So talk to us about how this could even happen. So when when this sort of alleged attack happened on the vessels at the Fajera port, um, you know, it, it came obviously at a time with heightened when there was heightened tensions between the United States and Iran. But you have Iran sort of facing off against neighboring countries, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, as well as Bahrain. These countries have been, you know, trading partners and sort of on again, off again allies. But at the moment, they're no friend to Iran. Um, the, the incident just came across as kind of frightening because there just wasn't enough information to understand what had happened. As, as the pictures emerged, as, as the information slowly started to come out about how many boats were, were affected, I think, I think people started to realize that this could, you know, if, 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 we, don't, if we don't treat this with, with a certain degree of sensitivity, it could be something that sparks a much wider conflict. Iran's leverage in all this is the Strait of Hormuz. This narrow body of water that separates Iran from the Arabian Peninsula, where you can really get a sense of how these adversaries bump so close to each other, and all the shipping traffic, which means huge amounts of oil from the region, has to go through there. This is one of the most economically important pieces of water in the world. And you went there this month. What was it like being there? What is most striking is when you're on the boat and sort of 
sailing out, it, it, it feels very big. It's, the, the expanse is huge. But then you keep coming across, you know, cargo vessels and, 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 and all kinds of like oil vessels, big tankers. No matter which way you look, there's dozens all the way across the water. You really get a sense of how small this space is, um, especially when you consider how much traffic there is. It's like a 12-lane highway. This is as close as we can get to an Iranian warship. The Navy takes the security of its vessels very seriously, especially around the waters of the Strait of Hormuz, where boats like this have the job of policing traffic in the waterway, but also looking out for American warships. It is small enough so that the Iranian um, Navy, the Iranian military, can very quickly control traffic if they need to. And that's really the threat. That's really the point they've been pushing this whole time, saying, you know, you've got to let us sell our oil or we're not going to let anyone sell oil. And this is the place where they can tighten the noose quite easily. I wanted to get your take because there's two narratives here. One out of the U.S. is that, quote unquote, maximum pressure. And one in Iran is maximum restraint. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that means and if it lines up with what you've been seeing? So when Iranians say that they've been exercising maximum restraint, what they mean is that they haven't pulled out of the nuclear deal. They, give, they gave the other signatories a year to do something. They didn't do a thing. Now what they're starting to do, they're saying even now as they start to dismantle their cooperation with the nuclear agreement, in line with the framework of the 2015 nuclear deal itself, they're saying even that they're doing in a slow process. You know, there's been experts who've said what they could have done in the Strait of Hormuz is start harassing commercial vessels, start harassing military vessels. They haven't done that yet. So they keep saying that they're holding back, they're not, you know, they're not ready to spark an all-out conflict. And I think what a lot of people here are trying to do is just wait it out and see what happens in the next election in the United States. And how are Iranians feeling about all of this? I've been seeing you on TV. Tell us about the protests you've been covering. As angry as Iran's government and people are with, with the United States, and I think they're more angry than afraid these days, I don't want to downplay how upset people are, but it's all pretty much routine. We've been to protests like these before. It's all fairly standard. People walk out of the prayer hall about a city block to the next square and chant death slogans to Iran's enemies along the way. At the end, they burn a few American flags. It's, it's sort of funny when they start burning flags, the people all sort of step back and the flag burnings are generally done as a, as a publicity stunt and mostly for the cameras. So it almost feels a little disingenuous sometimes to keep filming it because it's, it's, it's sort of become part and parcel of your set menu that you get when you go to one of these protests. Right. You have your usual suspects, the dr one guy dresses up like Trump, and then everybody sort of pretends to punch him in the face. <laughs> then there's someone else who's dressed in, in, in Iranian flag colors. But the, the thing that was different this time is that we spoke to a few people who said that they've come out for the first time to this protest, and they normally would have stayed at home, but the reason they've come out is because they feel like some, that, that things have gone too far. You know, this, this is my first time of taking part in such marching, actually, uh, just because, uh, because of what President Trump did. You know, I think it gave uh, us more unity. It, it made people more united. 
we're seeing the the country unite in, in a more in a more meaningful way, I think, um, than might have happened if Trump had just left the nuclear deal alone. So what is the mood in terms of debate on what Iran should do? Is there an internal debate going on in Iran right now? Is the Iranian government divided into a more hawkish camp and then those who are more interested in sticking to the deal and just trying to wait this out? I think that internal debate has really, it just seems to have started this week. In many ways, politicians, leaders, military and civilian leaders in Iran have painted themselves into a corner. They've pledged to be defiant. They've pledged not to negotiate. They're not going to renegotiate the nuclear deal. They're not going to talk to the U.S. So the public mood is really something that's, that's, that's difficult to gauge when so much of the air in the room is taken up by what the official policy is. I have a friend who was saying that um, it, as an Iranian, he feels like it's an existential threat, but it's too far away. And the most immediate threat for a lot of people is still the economy and not being able to afford to live their lives easily in the country. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there is worry here. People are worried. Um, everyone you speak to on the street, they, their, their primary concern is what's going to happen next. The path forward is completely fog. It's, it's totally covered in fog. But it's been covered in fog for decades, right? Iran and the U.S. have had no direct relationship for 40 years. There's been hostage takings, bombings, and Iran has been cagey about its nuclear program. So lots of reason for the U.S. to have real fears about Iran and also the groups it supports in the region. So what is it that's different now? Is it just the reaction from the U.S. or have Iran's actions changed too? I think you have to look at Iran in the wider context of the Middle East. What is different now is that Iran is in a much more powerful position than it was when it negotiated the nuclear deal in the first place. Iran's allies are in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. It's helped out Qatar with the, the blockade that Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain have carried out against it. And that is something that is, you know, a source of frustration for countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and politicians in the United States who want to maintain a Saudi-centric foreign policy narrative in the Middle East. And so that's really what's different. When the United States sort of made military overtures this time, it's on its own. And Iran has a lot more friends uh, than it used to. And I think that's something that really changes the dynamic in the region. So there's not this feeling of being on the brink of war anymore, but the possibility for it is still there. There's been talk over and over again about the potential for an accident, and there are just as many things that could trigger an escalation. It's just the reality of the neighborhood. So I know I'm asking you to speculate, but Iranians must be talking about this, and you must be asking people about this what do you think the Iranian response would be in a confrontation? You know, they, they do have the military capacity to react very quickly. And a lot of the experts we've spoken to, we, we ask them, what would a war between the United States and Iran look like? They know that, that the United States, that, that, that American firepower could level whole cities in Iran. But what they say is that they've sort of set up a mutually assured destruction kind of plan. In their analysis, what they know, what they know of their, with their contacts within the military, they say that Iran's military is prepared to lay waste to 
all of the countries that are allied with the United States in and around um, the waters of the Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. But I think it depends on the scale of what happens. I think it depends on how things play out. But, but then again, Iran has said it will not take the first step. It will not fire the first shot. This question of war, the will we, won't we, is almost inescapable here in Washington. And I'm sometimes tempted to turn off the news alerts on my phone. It kind of reminds me of the run-up to the Iraq war and that same sense of deja vu that Kimberly mentioned. I see similarities, but I think the most notable difference uh, is the skepticism, healthy skepticism that seemed so absent leading up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq by the United States. Um, Let me give you an example. So uh, before I worked for Al Jazeera, I was a, a national affairs correspondent for a Canadian national network. And I worked inside, uh, an American news network and, uh, you know, Canadians tend to not like conflict. And so our reports would be very critical. And you could hear, you know, my audio and my script coming out. And I'd walk out of the edit bay and I have sort of my colleagues, my American colleagues looking at me, giving me kind of dirty looks. And they were saying being that I was anti-American, that I was being unpatriotic. It was such a different time then because it was post-September 11th attacks. So, you know, fast forward to where we are today. There is very healthy skepticism. So we've been hearing, as you alluded to, some version of bomb Iran and threats against Iran and Iran destabilizing the region since at least the Bush administration. And we talked a lot with Zayn about how Iranians are feeling more angry than fearful, but they are worried these sanctions are causing real suffering in Iran. So for them, this time does feel different. Does it feel different to you too? Do the stakes feel higher? It's personal for me. My husband is an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran. Uh, You know, he is currently still serving in Afghanistan. And that really puts it in perspective for me. You know, as a journalist, you have to treat the stories objectively, and I rarely bring my family into this, but you want to just kind of, you almost want to have the opportunity to, just to look at these lawmakers who, who maybe haven't been touched personally and go, are you kidding me? Like, are we really here again? You know, when you're covering the White House, some of these policymakers do show up on the lawn or on the driveway, and you do have the opportunity to question them. And uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to be on my best behavior much longer. <laughs> and and it's my duty to not right. be on my best behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right. my duty to shout the questions for all the people at home and all the people, you know, around the world. The U.S. Congress makes decisions for the world. Uh, and I don't think that Americans fully understand that sometimes, but um, I do, uh, and a lot of us do, and we'll scream those questions. And I, if I feel any hope and optimism in all of this, it's that my colleagues feel the same way. And um, that's the job of a journalist, and, and hopefully that healthy skepticism will be effective. And that's The Take. 
This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Morgan Waters, Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. The social media producer is Natalia Aldana. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Zain Basravi, Kimberly Halkett, Hamid Surati, and Chris Sheridan. Hi, guys. I'm Graylin Brashear, and I'm the head of audio for Al Jazeera. I'm also the lead producer on this show. A week ago, one of the newsrooms in this company of many newsrooms published a piece of commentary. It was a video produced by AJ Plus Arabi, the Arabic language arm of one of Jazeera's digital divisions, and it questioned the details of the Holocaust. The fact that this happened was really upsetting to me, to us on this team, and to so many people who rely on Al Jazeera to deliver fair, unbiased news. The video was removed the next day, and two journalists who worked on it were suspended. Senior leadership in the company said the video violated Al Jazeera's editorial standards and that they deeply regret that it went out, and they're mandating bias training across the digital division. I think it's important to acknowledge to you, to everybody who listens to and watches and reads Al Jazeera, that this happened. And it's important to me to be very clear about why this was a violation of our editorial standards. We do not deny the facts of the Holocaust. We'll be back next week.